Amen. Let's open our Bibles together to the little letter of 3 John. We'll finish looking. Well, actually, we won't finish it today. We'll finish it next Sunday. Got a little ahead of myself there. But if you're new to the Bible, um, find the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then go left uh, a little bit, and you'll find 3 John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Three letters written by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus. We've been learning from his writings for a number of months. Third John, <clears throat> follow with me, please. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, I do not imitate, excuse me, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Now, as we learned last week, there are three personalities that appear in this brief letter. There is Gaius, the one who is receiving this letter, and he is being commended for walking in truth and love. He is commended for being gracious to show hospitality and financial support to traveling ministers of the gospel. And then there is, at the end of the book, mention of a man named Demetrius, who is the mailman who delivered this letter uh, to Gaius. And then between the two, there is a man by the name of Diotrephes, who is being warned against. The people are being warned against him, and he, in a sense, is also being warned by the apostle. Apparently, he, uh, the apostle sent a letter that was supposed to be received by the church and read to the church, but Diotrephes intercepted that letter and thought it best that he control the church by not letting the apostle say what the apostle wanted to say to the church. And so here we have in the middle of this brief letter some strong words concerning 
the pride that impacts churches in such a negative way. Here's a man who is power-hungry. Here's a man who is filled with selfish ambition. Here's a man who wants to be the leader or he's not going to serve at all. And perhaps you've run into Christians like that, as I have over the years, an attitude that I'm not going to serve in the church unless I have a title. I'm not going to serve in the church unless I'm the head of the committee. Don't ask me to be on a committee unless I'm the head of the committee. That kind of an attitude that Diotrephes had. He had to be in charge or he wasn't going to serve at all. And this is a reflection of his character or lack of character and the really serious condition of his heart. Because few things reveal the character and the heart and the maturity of a Christian more than the presence of pride and the absence of humility. Pride produces selfish ambition and power struggles, which damage unity among God's people. But the humility of Christ produces quite the opposite. Humility and teachability produce love and promote the strong bond of unity. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And one of the greatest characteristics of our Savior is his humility. There was never any pride displayed in the Lord Jesus in how he treated people and even how he taught. Even when he confronted the Pharisees and confronted them quite strongly, he was doing it not with pride but humility and faithfulness and dependence upon God, his Father. So we need to understand the importance of humility and the danger of pride. It's really essential for every Christian, especially those who have any aspiration to serve the Lord in some kind of uh, ministry leadership. And so that brings us then to the great value of this book, Third John where John commends Gaius for the balance of truth and love. That is, he had truth. He was committed to truth. He was committed to stay within the boundaries of Scripture and not go beyond them. He was also known for his love. He had a testimony of being a brother who loved other believers, especially those who were faithful to the Word of God. He had a love that placed a commitment on serving others more than he served himself. We noted last week that the word truth is uh, noted six times in this little note. Love occurs twice, but only regarding Gaius. No love was a part of the testimony of Diotrephes, but only of Gaius. And so Gaius goes down in history as being a man of humility and love, but Scripture forever remembers Diotrephes as a proud man who was filled with selfish ambition. And that brings us to today's big idea. That is this putting yourself first reveals selfish ambition, which damages unity among God's people. And think of the the contrast between these two men. Gaius saw himself as a servant, as, as part of God's team of fellow workers. And so his love promoted unity among God's people. But Diotrephes was a church bully who saw himself as a lord, as the first church boss, as the top dog, as uh, the big kahuna. 
you know, any, any of those names that you might um, put on a person who has to be in charge or they're not going to be happy at all. So John was prompted to write this note because of the conflict that was being caused among God's people by the proud, arrogant, selfish ambition of this man named Diotrephes. Jesus teaches us in the Gospels that you will know them by their fruits. In other words, we will know the integrity and authenticity of a Christian preacher by their fruits. And that's what we see here in this letter. One operated from a godly wisdom, which came from the Spirit, whereas the base of operations for the other person, Diotrephes, was the worldly wisdom of the flesh. James describes it this way. He, he describes opposite fruits of fleshly wisdom and godly wisdom. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. See the contrast? There's, there's wisdom that is totally of the flesh, and there is wisdom that is godly. Godly wisdom results in good behavior and gentleness, the gentleness of wisdom. But fleshly wisdom results in bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, and lying against the truth. And James says that the source of that fleshly wisdom is that which should really frighten us. He says it doesn't come from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. I've had people the last couple of years ask, how in the world did your church get through COVID? And how did you guys stay united? And my answer is always the same. It's because we refused, the elders refused in all of the countless meetings we had during 2020 to leave a meeting without being united around what we believed was God's wisdom. And what that meant is that, is that all of us at times had to yield to the other because our opinions and our conclusions were not always the same. But what was the same was a commitment to love this church in the unity of the Spirit with what we believed was godly wisdom. And I think that God has blessed that in amazing ways. I don't ever want to go through that time again, as you don't ever want to go through that time again. But God blessed the humility of a group of men who were determined to lay aside their personal preferences for the sake of what was good for the whole. And I believe that God has given a testimony uh, of that grace and of that uh, humility and that wisdom, which is something we want to continue to grow in because uh, all of us have pride in our hearts and we want God to slay that pride. We want him to replace that pride with the humility of Christ and that requires great effort and prayer. So last week, we looked at the Christ-like fruits of godly wisdom and love, which was displayed by this man named Gaius. Today we're going to see the ugly fruits, the ugly fruits from a rotten tree named 
Diotrephes. He was filled with fleshly wisdom and selfish ambition. And that brings us then to three warnings that we find in verses 9 and 10. First of all, be warned that selfish ambition leads to putting yourself before and above others. The selfish ambition that is in our hearts as a fruit of pride will always move us to consider ourselves to be better than others and want to put ourselves first instead of last. And remember, Jesus said that it is the last who shall be first and the first who shall be last. Look at verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Diotrephes intercepted this letter from the Apostle John, and he says, no, I know better. We're not going to give God's word to the church. I'm going to be in charge of the church. He wanted to be first. He, look at the description of him, who likes to put himself first. I mean, would that, is that what you would like on your gravestone? I mean, if we could visit the cemetery where Diotrephes was buried, that's what would be on his gravestone. He put himself first. I mean, who in the world would ever want that to be the memory? Um, but that's the way it is for this guy because he did not repent of his pride. So we know this man as one who did not show the selfless love of Christ, the Savior who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So instead, Diotrephes is forever famous for being a lover of self. It goes down in history. And that's his fame. And this prideful attitude is so dangerous to a church that the apostle Peter calls both old and young men to serve others in humility and to put this kind of pride to death. If we'll turn to 1 Peter First Peter chapter 5. We see here an exhortation from the apostle to church elders in particular, uh, but there is, of course, truth and application for each of us. He's calling the men of the church in particular here to humility. Uh, ladies, that doesn't mean that you get off the hook. Okay? You should also be pursuing humility and serving others and not putting yourself First, But notice what Peter writes in verse 1 of chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You see the humility in that very first verse. Peter does not put himself first. He doesn't put himself over all of the elders that he's writing to. He could because he is an apostle. And so he did actually have authority but he considers himself to be one of the many elders that he is writing to. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
You see all the the threads of humility that are running through these verses. Peter is a fellow elder as as an under-shepherd of Christ who is called to shepherd the flock of God and to do it not under compulsion, not because he is forced to do it, but willingly from a heart that loves to serve, a heart that loves God's people, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Being examples of what? Being examples of humility. There's a temptation in all of us to lord it over other people because we tend to think of ourselves first and we tend to think that that we think better than other people think and so people should follow us. We shouldn't follow them. And so we've got to fight that pride. We have to put on the humility of Christ uh, that doesn't domineer over other people but serves as an example. And then verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, that of course is Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, Peter addresses the elders first, but then he gets to everyone else in the congregation. And that's strategic, Because Peter knows that people will follow their leaders and people will tend to become like their leaders. And so Peter says, elders, you need to be humble. You need to not domineer over people's lives. You need to shepherd the flock of God with the love and the humility of Christ. And then he says to the younger people in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Those of you who are younger than what would be considered an elder, be subject. In other words, uh, follow their lead, obey them as they obey Christ. And then he says to all of us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's our admonition from the Lord, to clothe ourselves with humility, the humility of Christ. Why? Because God actively fights against. That's what that word opposes means. God actively fights against the person who is proud. We should put our pride to death before God has to apply pressure on us so that we do it. If we don't humble ourselves, then God will have to. But if we humble ourselves, then God won't need to humble us for us. So the humility that that Peter's calling for and that John is also calling for here is the humility of Christ. You probably all know people who just love a good fight. They're always on the hunt for something to complain about or something to argue about. And if that kind of person gets into church leadership, then it's my way or the highway becomes the mode of operation. 
In his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, Oswald Sanders warns aspiring leaders with these words, If you would rather pick a fight than solve a problem, do not consider leading the church. The Christian leader must be genial and gentle, not a lover of controversy. If you are one of those kinds of Christians who just loves a good fight, and you love controversy, you thrive on controversy, please don't ever become a leader in any church because you will be so destructive. You will be unlike Christ. See, when a proud man gets into a position of church leadership, what often happens is this. The tail begins to wag the dog. That person's personal agenda will dominate and dominate and dominate until he wears down everyone who opposes him until his selfish desire is satisfied. That is a picture of Diotrephes. Diotrephes was the tail trying to wag the dog of the church. He was the first original church bully. In the same book, Oswald Sanders writes this, Pride ever lurks at the heels of power, but God will not encourage proud men in his service. And then later he says, Many who aspire to leadership fail because they have never learned to follow. To be a good leader, you must first learn to be a good follower follower of Christ first and foremost but also one who is humble and can work together with a team of other leaders that's the first warning there's a second warning selfish ambition may reveal you have a problem submitting to authority look at uh, verse 9 as Diotrephes he likes to put himself first And he does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, John says, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. This man did not acknowledge the authority of the apostles, which was a God-given authority. Talking wicked nonsense against the apostles. So he would not submit to their authority to God's appointed leaders and instead he criticized them and even slandered them. And this has been a problem throughout biblical history. Uh, Let me show you just one example in the book of Numbers, the Old Testament book of Numbers or uh, should I say the book of Grumblers. Uh, The book of Numbers chapter 12, you see this. This occurs actually quite a number of times, no pun intended, in the book of Numbers. Um, But Numbers 12, you'll see the attitude of putting yourself first and what God thinks of it. Numbers chapter 12, um, give you a little history here. Moses is God's chosen leader for this period in the history of Israel. Um, He is a meek man. He is a sinful man. 
given to temptations. Eventually, because of his outbursts of anger, he will not even be able to go into the promised land. So we're not dealing with a perfect guy here. We're dealing with just God's choice for the leader. It says in chapter 12, Miriam, who's uh, Moses' sister and Aaron brother, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So they took issue with the fact that Moses married a woman who was of a different ethnicity. Moses married an African woman, and his brother and sister couldn't deal with it. They were racist in their heart. And instead of understanding that there is only one race, the human race, and multiple ethnicities, they took issue with Moses and created a conflict with him because of it. By the way, God's word says nothing that would oppose interracial marriage, as it's called. I would prefer to call it interethnic marriage, interethnicity, because there is only one race, the human race, but many, many different ethnicities. And I believe that God actually takes delight in marriages that are of different ethnicities because it portrays the beauty of his creation and it portrays the beauty of what heaven is going to look like, where there's going to be people of every nation, tribe, and tongue who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The only intermarriage that God's word forbids is a Christian marrying a non-Christian, a believer marrying a non-believer. That's the only interracial or uh, marriage, the kind of mixed marriage, you might say, is a spiritually mixed marriage. That God opposes. God does not oppose ethnically mixed marriages. They delight him, and they portray his creativity. Anyway, that's the background here. And so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? How come Moses gets to be in charge, and we don't get to be in charge? That was the issue. They picked what could be visible as an issue so that they would have something against him. But the real issue was they wanted to be first. They wanted to be like Diotrephes. Well, they made a mistake in that they forgot that the Lord hears everything that we say. Verse 2, and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. 
Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now here we see clearly what God thinks of a proud heart that refuses to submit to his God-appointed leadership, how he feels about the arrogance and the selfish ambition that sometimes arises in our hearts. Notice how Miriam and her disobedience didn't just impact Miriam. It impacted the entire community of faith. That's a truth for us in the New Testament body language. The church is a body. Not like a body, but a body. We're all different parts and we're functioning together and we impact each other. So don't ever think that you're an island. Don't ever think that your sin and your rebellion against the Lord only affects you. It will affect the people around you. Just as it did here, Miriam impacted the whole congregation and they had to actually pause their journey for seven days until she then was ceremonially cleansed. This selfish ambition that uh, arises in our hearts is real. That's just one of many examples. And you might wonder, why does the Holy Spirit record so many instances of this kind of attitude in Scripture? I believe it's to reveal what our hearts are capable of. I don't think it's so that we look backwards in time and say, well, if I would have been Aaron, I would have never done that. If I would have been Miriam, never would have said that. The potential is in each of our hearts. And, and that's why um, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, if you'll turn there for a second. This is super important because it, especially when you get through those really tedious portions of the Old Testament and you're wondering, do I really have to read through the book of Leviticus again? <laughs> do I really have to read the book of Numbers? 
I mean, what, what benefit is there in this? I try to remember 1 Corinthians 10 when I come to some of those passages and I'm scratching my head wondering, Lord, I'm, I'm glad someday you'll tell me why in the world you put this in the Bible. But um, we have this instruction, it says, in 1 Corinthians 10, says, now these things took place. The context is the, the disobedience of the people in the wilderness. And when they were grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses, they were actually grumbling against Christ. And um, so Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why do we have all these examples like Miriam and Aaron and the people throwing all their jewelry into a fire so that they could uh, make a golden calf that then they could worship and say that this golden calf is the one that rescued them out of Egypt? Why is all of that in the Bible? It is to show us our hearts, the proud, arrogant hearts that we have. It is to show us the temptation that lies in our hearts to be idolaters just as they were idolaters. So the next time you run back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as a comforting verse, which I believe we should do in the face of temptation, to remember that no temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. In other words, my struggle against sin is not unique to me. Your struggle against sin is not unique to you. It's common to man. But God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. Now remember, the context of that verse has to do with pride. Verse 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You get to the point in your Christian life when you think that you are no longer susceptible to the temptation that someone else has succumbed to, you have set yourself up to be defeated by that very same temptation. Pride goes before the fall. That's the point that the apostle is making. God opposes, remember what James says, God opposes, he actively resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then there's a third warning in the passage today, turn back to 3 John, and that is this, selfish ambition often flows from a heart that is discontent. 
This is really an important principle. Look at how John describes Diotrephes. He wouldn't acknowledge the authority of the apostles. He talked wicked nonsense against them. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Selfish ambition drove Diotrephes to, to not even be content with slandering the apostles. He had to go further and execute what he considered to be total control over the church. And because he didn't want to serve the traveling missionaries, he didn't allow anyone in the church to love and serve the traveling missionaries. His heart was not content with God's placement of him in the body in that season of life. And this is a warning to us from God. Discontent with where God has placed you in your current season of life will lead you in the wrong direction because that discontent will feed into selfish ambition and pride and you will want what you believe God has withheld from you or you will want what other people have as Diotrephes did. He wanted the apostles' authority. He wasn't content to just be a servant in the church. He wanted to be the apostle over that church. Selfish ambition will tempt you to make things happen in the flesh instead of waiting on the timing of the Lord. As your inner heart is discontent and and agitated and, and filled with angst, you're going to be tempted to do things outside of the timetable of the Lord, to make it happen in the flesh so that you can get what you want now instead of waiting for it. But it's always best to wait for the Lord, to wait on him by cultivating faithfulness where you are. One of my favorite passages in the Psalms is Psalm 37, 3 to 5. I have used this passage to counsel so many people over the years who are struggling with, with contentment with their current season of life. They, they knew something was coming in the future. They wanted that something in the future, but they were impatient and unwilling to just settle down and learn patterns of faithfulness. Listen to how the psalmist says. I, I prefer the way the New American Standard has translated it, so let me read it to you. Trust in the Lord and do good. Now that's interesting. That tells us that trust is active, not passive. Trust in the Lord and do good. Live in the land and cultivate faithfulness. If I could just give two, a two-word piece of counsel to every young person in this congregation, that is it. Cultivate faithfulness. 
Cultivate faithfulness in the little things wherever God has placed you. Cultivate faithfulness in your family. Cultivate faithfulness with your employer. Cultivate faithfulness with whatever ministry you're involved in here at the church. Cultivate faithfulness. Make faithfulness on a daily basis your goal. And guess what will happen? God's will will come about in his timing. Because what's going to happen is verse 4. When you delight yourself in the Lord and being faithful to the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. He will cause your heart to want the things that he wants for you. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Like you, I can look back in my life and I can see numerous times where I was impatient and I just wanted God's will and I wanted it now and I rushed ahead and I did it my way. And thankfully, I've also seen the opposite. I've seen growth in waiting on the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, no, not now. Right now, my task is to cultivate faithfulness. And that's all that you want from me. And that, there's beautiful freedom and contentment in that. God has called each of us to cultivate faithfulness. And he will lead us according to his way in his perfect timing. So what are the warnings from God this morning? Well, there are three. Selfish ambition will lead you to put yourself before and above others. Be careful of that. Selfish ambition may reveal you of a problem submitting to authority. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you if that is uh, what your heart is struggling with. Selfish ambition often flows from a heart of discontent. Is your heart filled with discontent? Do you not like your current station in life and perhaps you're not even quite happy with God about it? Learn to cultivate faithfulness with where you're at when you're at it. So if any of those describe you, then you need to correct course. And that correction of course is our one takeaway today. The remedy for the pride of selfish ambition is to put on the humility of Christ. Remember Philippians 2. Remember Colossians 3. Remember all of these scriptures that reveal to us the humility of the Son of God, the glorious Son of God who humbled himself to become a man that he might then take that perfect human life to the cross as the one and only acceptable sacrifice for our sin in our place so that he could then pay our sin debt and be risen from the grave three days later to give life to all who will humble themselves before him. Repent of pride, repent of unbelief, and turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation. That is our takeaway today to put on the humility of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We think of that passage in Philippians 2 that 
reminds us of how we are called to put on Christ. We're to follow the humble example of the Lord Jesus who took upon himself human flesh and and he made himself obedient, obedient to the point of death, dying in our place for our sins. He is the one who considered our need of salvation, redemption, forgiveness to be greater than his desire to retain tightly to the glory that belonged to him. He was willing to lay that aside so that we could be saved, knowing that in the future someday you will restore that glory when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Holy Spirit, however you desire to apply this message to our hearts today, we give you free reign. We pray that you will take your word and cause it to go into the nooks and crannies of our heart, even discerning the motives of our heart, as your word says it does, so that when you reveal pride to us, in whatever form it's in, resistance to your word, stubbornness to change, selfish ambition, wanting to be first, you name it, and the endless faces that pride puts on Lord, we, we choose to repent of that pride, knowing that you are not only the one who opposes the proud, but you are also the same God who, exalt, who exalts the humble in your perfect time. Give us patience and grace, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.